this with me right now. Bow with me, and let's ask God's blessing on our time. Father, um, you know my prayer and heart, and that is that as we have worshipped you, that it would do nothing but open up our hearts and open up our minds to the truth that you have for us in your word. Lord, for hundreds of years now, that's the way Christians have been doing business. When we gather as the church, we sing to you, we rub shoulders with each other in fellowship, we have the ministry of music and worship, and then we go into the Word. And we do so, Lord, because we know that our drawing close to you in worship is the best way to prepare us for your truth. And so, God, I pray that as we look now at what Jesus has to say about the future, what he gives us to prepare us for the future, that, God, indeed, we'd be prepared and that we'd be ready. God, teach us some things maybe today we didn't know and uh, lift our sights beyond the here and now to what our lives can be when they're hidden in you. And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. Well, one of the things that uh, has been uncanny about the world that you and I live in is that for thousands of years now, people have always tried to predict the future and most of the time have gotten it wrong. You ever notice that? I I mean, people are always trying to predict what's going to come down the pike to be predictive in culture And many times it's just downright hilarious when we see what really happens. A few years ago, the Futurist magazine did an article on some of the worst predictions of all time. You guys are going to love these. Look up here on the screen. Here's one. Inventions have long since reached their limit, and I see no hope for further development. Roman engineer Julius Sextus Frontinus, A.D. 100. So he was wrong on that one. I, I just say he was wrong. Uh, Here's one more closer to our day and age. The abdomen, the chest, and the brain will forever be shut from the intrusion of the wise and humane surgeon. John Eric Erickson, surgeon to Queen Victoria, 1873. Wouldn't you love to bring that dude back today and uh, for him to see what we've done? Uh, This one's my favorite. Uh, Law will be simplified over the next century. (laughs) Lawyers will have diminished and their fees will have been vastly curtailed. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Journalist Junius Henry Brown, 1893. We could have only wished. Uh, Here's one that takes the cake. It doesn't matter what he does, he will never amount to anything. Albert Einstein's teacher to Einstein's father, 1895. (laughs) This next one will make you wince. Um, This was done in 1949. It would appear that we have reached the limits of what is possible to achieve with computer technology. Computer scientist John von Neumann. I thought, if that guy's still alive, buy him an iPad or something. I mean, it's just just amazing. And then this is true. Arthur Summerfield, U.S. Postmaster General under Eisenhower, 1959, said, before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Now, here's the deal. These are smart people that are saying these things, right? I mean, it'd be one thing if this was like Jay Leno or Letterman or people that are comedians. These are like the cream of the crop. These are the people who in their day and age were the best surgeons, the best engineers, the best scientists. And in their best guess, they saw what might be coming down the pike and we laugh now in hindsight and go, how could they have missed it? That's human nature. All of us want to know the future. All of us want to see what's, what's coming. But the reality is, is that we're so finite that we really have no clue. I love how Reinhold Niebuhr said it, a great theologian of about 50 years ago. He says, when the finite looks into the infinite, he gets dizzy. 
and it's true. But when you and I as finite beings try to do something like predict the future, it's just a miserable failure uh, and we get dizzy. But here's what you need to know. Jesus, who was not finite, Jesus, who was the eternal Son of God, God come in the flesh, talked a lot about the future. And yet, unlike so many experts over the years who have tried to take a stab at what the future might hold, only to be proven wrong, what Jesus said about the future not only has and will continue to stand true, but it's downright life-altering and life-changing if we'll but listen to it and apply what he said. And so to get our hearts and minds prepared for the rest of our study in Daniel, as well as to keep us all unified on what's going to happen in the future of this world, I want to share with you three things this morning that Jesus said about the future. Three simple but profound things that Jesus said that I think will do nothing but keep our bear, help us keep our bearings straight as we head back into Daniel next week. And so with this said, let's just start real simple and yet real profound. Here's what Jesus teaches about the future. Look up here on the screen. And that is that there will be a future, and it's God's. There will be a future, and it's God's. And though some of you are thinking right now, well, duh, Jamie, like that's really, really simple. I'm going to show you in a minute here how that's an awfully profound understanding when you finally get what Jesus means by this. For first, let's look at how Jesus communicated this to us. Look at Luke chapter 21, verse 33. Jesus is speaking. He says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And then let's tie that to Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus said, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now put these two understandings together. Someday in the future, Jesus says, all that we see, the earth and everything in it, even the heavens, which in this context means the stars and the universe as a whole, will someday be no more. Uh, Jesus is saying someday everything that we see is going to be gone. The book of Revelation confirmed this some 60 years later when John was receiving revelation from God in prophetic form where it says, For the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer going to be any sea. Someday, Jesus says, this world and universe will be no more. It's only temporary in God's grand scheme of things. And yet interesting, notice that even when this world is no more, Jesus says his words will still be around. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Theologians wrestle with what that means. And to understand it, you just simply need to recognize that Jesus' words are all about his purposes his plans, and his truth. And so what Jesus is saying here is that though physically heaven and earth will pass away, his purposes, his plans, his truth will never pass away. And so don't miss this, folks. The future is God's. He has a plan. He has a purpose for all of this, even when it's gone someday. And his purposes and his plans, Jesus says, will not ultimately be thwarted. And then so that we know that there's something very personal going on in this future of God's, Jesus also says, and by the way, I am with you, even to the end of the age. In other words, not only is the future mine, Jesus says, but I'm front and center in it, always with you, even to the end of the age. And so make no mistake, folks, the first thing that Jesus tells us about the future though simple but very profound, is that there is going to be one, and it's God's. He is in control. He is taking it all somewhere. He has a plan, and this plan is not going to be stopped, and it's not going to be thwarted. 
not by terrorism, not by meteorites or asteroids, not by nuclear bombs, not by totalitarian regimes, and certainly not by increasing secularism in a nation that used to be more godly. Nothing can stop the plan of God. He is taking this world somewhere. He is ultimately and sovereignly in control. And one of the things Jesus taught us here is that the future is clearly in God's hands. We might worry about it, but I'm here to tell you, he's not up in heaven biting his fingernails right now. He is not worried about what's coming down the pike. He knows and he has told us that he's in ultimate control. You know, I've shared this this philosophical thought with you before, but when philosophers get a hold of Jesus's worldview here and the New Testament as a whole, what they label this is a linear view of time, a linear view of time. In other words, time that has a beginning and time that has an end, and, and it's a linear line in between, a, a line that's taking us somewhere. And the other view of time that competes for that is what we call a circular view of time. If you've ever studied Eastern religions or New Age philosophy, they teach a circular view of time. That time is not linear, but it's a never-ending circle of life, death, reincarnation, life, death, reincarnation, life, death, and on and on. So it's a circle that goes ad infinitum all the way into the future, never-ending. The Bible knows nothing about that view of time. No, the Bible says, Jesus taught us that there's a beginning. Give me a couple clicks here, guys. Jesus taught us in Matthew 19, 4, that God created male and female in the beginning. So there was a beginning to time. And then in Matthew 24, the verse that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes, Jesus says, but the end is still to come. So in Jesus' cosmology, don't miss this, there's a beginning and an end. It's linear in nature. And some of you are saying, well, big whip, why is that so important? Here's why that's so important. It's important because if you and I can get it all our heads and hearts around the fact that God was in control at the beginning, that God is going to be in control at the end, that even though our lives right now might be confusing and messed up, because we understand the beginning and because we understand the end, we can rest assured in the present. Isn't that cool? It's the way the human mind works. You see, if we can understand the beginning and understand the end, then we realize it's linear. And though we might be in a messed up place now, because we understand the beginning and the end, we can rest in the middle of our mess, understanding that God is in control. See, I would argue that most uh, people try and want to, at the end of the day, think in a linear fashion. I just think it's the way we're hardwired. Somebody sent me a great paragraph a few years ago when I was doing a study on all this stuff that I thought was so cool. Look up here on the screen. I'll read it to you. They sent me this paragraph. They said, the human mind is a wonderfully complex organ. You see, it doesn't matter in what order the letters in a word appear. The only important thing is that the first and last letter are in the right place. The rest can be a total mess, and you can still read it without a problem. This is because the human mind does not read every letter by itself, but the word as a whole. Amazing, isn't it? And it is. Uh, that's the way you and I function. You see the beginning of the word and the end of the word, and because there's some familiarity, you can fill in the gaps. And it's the way that most of us read. I would argue that it, we're hardwired to do that, and that that's the way God wants us to view our world theologically as well. That what he's concerned about is that we know it had a beginning and the beginning was his. He wants us to know there's going to be an end and the end is his. And even though the middle might be confusing for you right now, 
because you understand the beginning and the end, you can rest assured and you can trust him in the present. That's why it's so important, though it seems so simple, that we understand what Jesus means when he says that the future is his, that there is a future and he's in control. It's the first thing we understand about Jesus' view of the future. Now, there's more. Jesus actually gets more specific, and some of you like this, as we go on in our understanding of what he said about the future. And so here's the second thing that Jesus teaches us about the future. Look up here on the screen, and it's this, that we're to observe the times, the signs of the times, and long for his return. Man, this is so important. Jesus taught us we're to observe the signs of the times. We'll see what that means in a minute. And when you do, we're to long then for his return. Now, this one is kind of tricky. I'll let you know that right up front. Uh, the reason it's tricky is because I believe a lot of Christians have messed up Jesus' teaching here when it comes to what the signs of the times and longing for his return is about. And so to understand this most clearly, if you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 24. If you have a red-letter Bible, you will notice that Matthew chapter 24 is almost all red letters, meaning it's almost all the complete teachings, or almost completely the teachings of Jesus. And in this chapter here, the disciples, Jesus' closest followers, had been asking him about the future and what is to come, and so Jesus spends the whole chapter here talking to them about the future. And it begins here by, in verses 5 through 14, Jesus talks about some general signs that we're going to see that will let us know that the end is coming. I'm not going to read verses 5 through 14 for time's sake. You can read it later on your own. But I put up here on the screen just sort of a Cliff Notes version of what Jesus communicates here with these general signs, the signs of the times that we need to be looking out for that signal the end is going to come someday. These signs are that we'll see false appearances of Christ, those who claim to be him but are not. We're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. There's going to be political conflict, famines, earthquakes. There'll be persecution of believers. Many people will fall away. There's going to be lawlessness. The love of many will grow cold, Jesus says. And yet in the midst of all of this negativity, then Jesus says, but the gospel is still going to be preached, and it's going to be preached even to the whole world. Interesting. So missionary activity is going to be going on strongly as culture continues to struggle and get chaotic. These are called the signs of the times by theologians. It's what Jesus told us to look for and, to, and then to equate with the end eventually coming. Now, let's wrestle with this a minute. I want to ask you a question. Has there ever been a time or a generation in the last 2,000 years that where when you look at this list, couldn't say that these things are happening in their day and age? Think about that. Now look at that list there and ask yourself, has there ever been a time or a generation, whether it was Augustine's time in the 4th, 5th century, or whether it was the time of the Middle Ages, you know, with the castles and the moats and the Turks attacking, or whether it was the Renaissance period or the Enlightenment time or the founding of our nation or the Industrial Revolution of 100 years ago. Has there ever been a time in the history of the, of the last 2,000 years since Jesus uttered these words in which any generation could not say, I'm seeing these things in my generation? I think the answer is obvious. The answer is, yeah, just about every generation sees these things. 
Every generation has people who claim to be Christ. Every generation has wars and rumors of wars. Every generation has famine. Every generation sees persecution of believers. Every generation knows people whose love has grown cold. And yet in every generation since the time of Christ, we've also seen the gospel go further and further and further into an unreached world. And so some people have to need to ask themselves, well, why is this happening? Why would every generation see this? Listen to what Jesus says in verses 6 through 8 of Matthew 24 here. I think this is key. He says, these things, these general signs, are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. Fascinating phrase. These are the beginning of birth pangs. The end is not yet. So check this out. I believe that the whole purpose of these general signs is so that every generation since the time of Christ will see these signs, and I'll explore this more in a minute, and then long for his return. We'll see these signs and it will remind us, oh my gosh, yes, we live in a fallen world. This world is not our home. I was made for another place. Someday he's going to put an end to all this stuff. I better be ready. I think that's the purpose of general signs that every generation are going to see these things. And as I'll explore in a minute here, we're not to try to guess then when he's going to come back just because we see these signs. We can't do that. Jesus will tell us that. But what we can do is to use them to prepare us for the fact that someday he's going to come back and we need to be ready. That's the first thing Jesus teaches us here in Matthew 24. Now, believe it or not, he goes on in the next few verses after this to talk about a more specific negative aspect of culture, what we call the Great Tribulation. Actually, these are Jesus' words. He says, after these general signs, there will come a generation, now don't miss this, folks, in which there will be a Great Tribulation. Again, you can read about it later in verses 15 to 28, but I'll just tell you right now, Jesus says it's a tribulation like nothing ever seen. He doesn't tell us exactly what will happen in this tribulation. All he does is tell us that it will be so bad that if you're like in the valley, you're going to want to run to the mountains. He's saying, just hope it's not winter. If you're a new mother or a nursing mother, he says it's going to be really difficult for you. Pray it doesn't happen at that time. Jesus says there's going to be a tribulation like nothing ever seen on this earth that's going to come right before the end. And again, he doesn't tell us anything about it except that there's going to be multiple false appearances of Christ. And probably what is most fascinating for our look in the series we're in on Daniel is that Jesus actually here in Matthew 24 quotes Daniel 9, verse 27. We'll explore that more next week, but Daniel 9, 27, a passage we're going to look at next week, talks about abominations of desolation. The fact that at the end there's going to be this great tribulation that will be just awful. And Jesus quotes Daniel saying these are the abominations of desolations that Daniel talks about. And though we don't have time to go into it today, we will next week. Many people over the years, based on other scriptures, have added further understanding to this great tribulation. Some people see this as having a length to it, seven years, based on a symbolic understanding of Daniel 9. Some people see a rapture of believers either before, during, or after this seven-year period of tribulation. There's lots of debate on that stuff. We'll explore some of that next week. But the point is, is that what all people do agree on, however, because Jesus is so clear on this, is that at some point, after the time of the general signs, there is going to come a generation in which a great tribulation will come, and that signals the beginning of the end. That it's right on the coattails of something that's going to happen, and that's the third thing Jesus teaches us, and that is that there's going to be a visible return of Jesus Christ. 
So you got the general signs that every generation will see, a great tribulation that will eventually come that signals the visible return of Jesus Christ. In verses 29 to 32 of Matthew 24, he talks about this. He says that he'll come again. The book of Revelation says that he'll be setting up a 1,000-year reign on this earth called the Millennial Kingdom, and then he'll usher in the end of the age. And folks, what you need to know, because there's a lot of question on this from people who haven't read the Bible very much, is that when this happens, it's going to be like real clear that it's him. You know, there's been some rock songs written in the last few years, you know, in which, you know, what if Christ was one of us, a slob just like one of us, you know, and a guy sitting on a bus and all that, and it's trying to describe what would happen if Jesus came back, you know, and existed in his culture. The fact is, the Bible never talks about him coming back like that. No, the Bible says that when he comes back, it's going to be like so clear that it's him, nobody's going to be wondering. No one's going to sit there and go, I wonder if this is Jesus. Why? Because he's coming in the clouds. There's going to be a cosmic show. He says the sun will go dark, the stars will fall. I mean, all of creation is going to come unglued at that time, the Bible says, in multiple places, by the way. It says it in 1 Thessalonians 4, in the book of Revelation, here in Matthew 24. The Bible says that when Jesus comes back again, all of us who are alive at that time, and then those of us who are resurrected, uh, because he'll be calling all believers to himself, will have no doubt that it is Jesus who is here. And again, at this point, with his return, there's some debate as to what's going to happen. Some people see a 1,000-year literal reign of Christ on this earth. Some don't. I happen to think that's what will happen based on my understanding of Scripture. Other people see that there's a specific role for Israel as a nation and as a land. Some don't. I happen to see that that's what the Bible is saying. I think there will be a specific role for Israel. We'll talk about that more in the coming weeks. And yet the one thing that everybody does agree on, however, that unifies all of us in our interpretation of Scripture is that he's coming. And that when he comes, he's going to put an end to all the shenanigans of sin. And that linear thing that we talked about earlier, the end is now here. So I know, folks, that this is a little confusing, even though, even new for some of you who are recent believers and for others of you who are lethargic veteran believers. But to recap... You got these general signs given to all generations, then followed by a great tribulation like none ever seen that will be a forerunner to the greatest cosmic show ever seen when Christ visibly returns to usher in the end of the age. This is the broad brushstroke of God's plan. Now, here's what I want you to wrestle with. Last thing before we go this morning. Why is it that Jesus shared this with us? Why is it? Is it so that we can have more head knowledge and run around and, and, and talk about all the things that we know about the future? Well, maybe in part. Is it so that we might try to guess when this is going to happen and, and try to predict when all this is going to take place? Well, no, not at all. The reason that Jesus shared this with us is so that you and I might be ready when he comes and long for his return. That's the reason he shared this with us. And what you need to know is that when I said earlier that many Christians tend to mess this up, they mess it up precisely at this point. They see the purpose of prophecy as to somehow try to predict when and even in all of its nuances how Jesus is going to come. And by so doing, they transgress the boundaries of Scripture. They transgress even the teachings of Jesus and mess everybody else up. 
And all I can tell you, folks, is that the last 2,000 years of Christian history has shown one embarrassing mistake after embarrassing mistake of people trying to go beyond what Scripture has said and predict when Christ is going to come and even fill in all the gaps on what it will be like, more so than the Scriptures tell us. How many of you remember Y2K? Let's see a hand raise. You guys remember Y2K? Yeah, and you know, there were some wacko Christians that thought the end is here now. Actually, what most of you don't know is that there was a Y1K, a Y1K. It happened in the year 999 A.D., and obviously back then it was the Western world of Europe that was very much into Christianity. And so at St. Peter's Basilica on December 31st, 999, uh, Pope Sylvester was giving a sermon at that time, and word had gotten around by some of the teachings within the church at that time that Jesus was going to return on that night. And they did it based on the general signs. Culture then was chaotic, so there was wars, there was rumors of wars, politics was getting really heated up, there was famines, there was earthquakes, the love of many were growing cold, you see where this is going. And so people predicted, well, it's 999, it's the turn of the century, and Jesus is coming back. And they had so many people convinced on Y1K that Jesus was coming back that people were screaming in terror at St. Peter's Basilica that night. Some even died from fright as the bells started to toll at midnight. And then when the bells got done, what do you think happened? Nothing. Nothing. It was like life as usual. Just like when many of us sat around with Y2K and looking for it to change, you know, the clocks and waiting for everything to go dark. Nothing. Nothing happened. And again, I know why 2K was much more about technology than even spiritual things, but those that added spiritual stuff to it, I think, transgressed the boundaries of Scripture. What you need to know is that there's story after story after story in the history of the world like this. In the 1800s, William Miller uh, predicted, based on some calculations out of the book of Daniel, that Christ was going to return in 1847. And some of you think, well, come on, who would buy that? 50,000 people bought that. 50,000 people showed up in a field and, and, and were longing for Christ's return, and it never happened. Louis Armstrong in, in 1972 predicted that Jesus was going to come back, and he never did. And these aren't isolated stories. I mean, there are story after story after story of Christians trying to predict when Jesus is going to come, and they're all wrong. And not only is it an embarrassment to us as believers when this happens, but it misses the whole point of why Jesus shared this information with us in Matthew 24. And the point is this, that these signs were not given so that we would try to guess when it was going to happen. No, these signs were given so that you and I would remain spiritually focused, spiritually sharp, and long for his coming. Look at how Jesus teaches us. Give me two clicks here, guys. In verse 33 of Matthew 24, Jesus says, So also when you see all these things, you know that he, Jesus, is near at the very gates. And then in verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. Folks, I see nothing here about us trying to guess when he's going to come. In fact, the opposite. What I see Jesus doing here is saying it could be at any time. So live each day like this might be your last and be prepared in case he does come. And I would simply suggest to you that that's an incredibly tall order in and of itself. Amen? I mean, most of us don't live like that. Most of us do not live like Jesus would come back tomorrow. If we did, we wouldn't be doing and saying the things that we do. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but it's true. Most of us really don't believe that he could come back. We don't see this stuff as real. 
We see it as great stuff for science fiction movies. We see it as great stuff for the small subset of Christians who are really into this prophecy stuff. But the reality is, is that when you look honestly at Jesus' teaching on prophecy, you realize that this is real stuff and that he's not messing around. Fred is right when he said, man, be prepared for this. Be prepared for what's going to come. Paul is right. Don't be divisive with this. Let's all get on the same page. And the reality is, is that he could come at any moment. So here's the third thing he teaches us. Give me a click here, guys. And that is that we not need to worry about it. We need to be ready for it. And that's a tall enough order. You see, the problem is when many of us understand the future, we just add it to our worry list, especially when we realize that it goes from tribulation to great tribulation. Amen? We're already worriers by nature. We worry about our kids, our job, our life, our emotions, our 401k. we got all these things that we worry about. And all of a sudden you hear this wonderful, scintillating, engaging, encouraging sermon on the end by Jamie. And you go, my gosh, i got to add that one to my list now. I mean, thanks, Jamie. Tribulation, great tribulation. And then toward the end, it'll all get glorious as he returns. So you add that to your worry list. Please know that is not why Jesus taught us this stuff. As many of you know, early on in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, what Jesus taught, he said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself, sufficient for each day, for the day is its own trouble. So the reality is Jesus' logic is impeccable. He's basically saying, look, tomorrow will take care of itself, or as we know, God's in control of tomorrow. You've got enough on your plate today. So focus on today. Live in the present and be prepared in the present for the fact that you could return any time. I don't know if you caught it in the passage that we looked at earlier in Matthew chapter 24. I think it was verse 43. Give me a click here, guys. 42. Uh, but Jesus said, so stay awake. I love that phrase, stay awake. In the original language that the New Testament was written in the Greek language, it literally means to be ready. It just means be ready, to stay vigilant, to always be at arms. It's a military phrase. Don't fall asleep at your post. And I would just suggest to you that what Jesus is saying more than anything to us about the future is that when we read Daniel like we're going to do over the next few weeks and start to unpack a lot of what Daniel says, you're going to understand some things coming down the pike. Use those things to be ready. Use those things to motivate you to know more of the Word of God. Use them, as we saw last week, to motivate you to be more a man or woman of prayer. Use those things to motivate you to be more obedient in your battle against sin. Use those things to motivate you to want to fellowship more with other believers and start to get to know them better. Use those things to get you to share your faith more often with lost people. Use those things to spur you on in using your gifts and your passions to serve God. You get the idea? We're to use these things to ready our soul so that if he comes back tomorrow, which he could, we're ready. And all I know is that if we had a few thousand believers here at Scottsdale Bible Church that would be that ready, there'd be no end to how God would use us to impact this world, this culture, our families, and our friends. No end. We'd be the sharpest Christians anywhere if we'd be ready for his return. Many of you who read novels have read the novelist John Grisham, probably one of the most popular novelists who's still alive today. I actually like Grisham. I've read everything that he's read. I find him uh, rather clean and wholesome compared to a lot of the sultry stuff that you can read out there. 
And uh, there was a reason for that, is that Grisham was raised in the South, raised in a conservative Bible-believing church, and he's retained a lot of his roots and, and, is, and is still a believer today. And a few years ago, Christianity Today was reading a, uh, or doing an interview of John Grisham, and as they were doing that, he told a story of something that happened to him in his, co- or his law school days that forever marked him. I want to read for you a quote of what he said. He says, one of my best friends in college died when he was 25, just a few years after we graduated from Mississippi State University. He says, I was in law school, and he called me one day and wanted to get together, so we had lunch, and he told me he had cancer, and I couldn't believe it. I asked him, what do you do when you realize that you're about to die? Look up here on the screen. It's real simple, my friend said. You get things right with God, and you spend as much time with those you love as you can, then you settle up with everybody else. Finally, he said, you know, really, you ought to live every day like you only have a few more days to live. And Grisham says, I have never forgotten those words. You ever known somebody that knows they're going to die? As a pastor, I meet people like that all the time. I I work with people who um, are facing death's door. One of the things I learned very early on in my ministry when I went into this stuff 20, 25 years ago is that those who realize that their days are short all of a sudden get focused on preparing. And that's a good thing. I would hope that if you got news that your day was going to be, or your time was going to be short, that you'd start preparing for your home going to be with Christ. And yet, the reality is, is that we should treat every day like that, shouldn't we, if we're reading Jesus right? We should re- treat every day like it could be our last. Every day so that we're sharp spiritually, sharp relationally, focused and longing for his return. Here's my simple hope and prayer as we wrap up Daniel over the next few weeks. I hope that as we unpack what Daniel teaches about the future, that if we teach your particular interpretation or not, that you're still a team player with us and that we can keep the spirit of unity and the bond of peace. I hope that as we unpack what Daniel says, that you will be ready for Christ's return, ready to to apply the things that we learn. More than anything, I hope as we unpack this stuff that it doesn't freak you out when he shares some of the things that will be happening in time not yet seen, but it just causes your heart to, in humble worship, long for and prepare for his return. It's going to happen. Time's linear. God's taken it somewhere. But he's let us know what's going to happen so that we might be ready. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that uh, we live in the kind of country that we live in where we can meet here freely without fear of repercussion and talk freely about your word and what it teaches. Lord, there are many cultures alive today that don't have that freedom based on the signs of the times, the persecution that you warned us about. And someday, Lord, it'll get worse. And so, Lord, as we revel now in our freedom and the joy that we have to be able to meet together, to worship you, to talk to you and about you, I pray, God, that you would use these times to prepare us for what lies ahead. God, we don't know what your timeline is, but you have given us a little clue as to what's going to happen. And so, Lord, we sit here right now, hopefully more motivated to be ready for your return. So, Lord, when it comes to our ability and understanding your word, when it comes to loving others, when it comes to obeying you, when it comes to sharing our faith, when it comes to using our gifts and passions to serve, God, I pray that each of us would be sober and excited about doing those things. 
Thank you, Lord, that you love us. Thank you that your grace never ends. Thank you that you show your grace and even showing us the future. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And the whole church says together, amen. Hey, God bless you. We'll see you guys next week.